Hello and welcome to The Two View, the cutting edge educational and interactive show for PAs and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine and urgent care. This is our favorite month of the year, the second month of the year, and maybe you're tuning in for the first time because you're really feeling the hype around the 2-22-22 date. So we're going to reintroduce ourselves my name is Mike Sharma. I started my PA career in the U.S. Army, including a deployment to Afghanistan. Now I practice emergency and urgent care medicine in Dallas, Texas. With me is my co-host, Martha Roberts. Hi, Mike. I'm Martha Roberts, and I am an adult and pediatric nurse practitioner. I work at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital in San Francisco, California, in the emergency department. I'm also an assistant professor where I run the pediatrics department at Samuel Merritt University here in Sacramento. Martha and I are both faculty educators at the original Emergency Medicine Boot Camp in Las Vegas, Nevada, under course co-directors Dr. Rick Bucata and Dr. Diane Burbaumer. This is run overall by the Center for Medical Education. You can find them at www.ccme.org. So since January 2021, Mike and I have been discussing the latest in emergency medicine and urgent care from the perspective of the PA and the nurse practitioner. Two views on the same topics, occasionally an oblique view from a special guest. It's been awesome having these guests from around the world, emergency medicine education, giving us really just great information. Um, so thank you for all of those special guests. We actually have one um, this year at the end of the podcast, and I'm going to let Mike tell you about that in a minute. Okay. Well, speaking of the latest in EM and urgent care, let's get into today's topics. I'm really happy for Martha's sake that I'm the one with the mysterious ailment this month. We'll start by talking about urticaria in its different forms and some mimics and how you can treat that. Then a topic that's a real pain in the butt for patients and clinicians alike, vaginal and rectal foreign bodies. Yeah, Mike, I thought you were about to say um, one that was uh, your problem this month was going to be a rectal foreign body. That would have been just a to be clear, the urticaria is my problem. Yes, okay. not the right. other one. All right, all right. So we have a couple of pain in the pelvic area issues, right? So we're going to switch ends at the end and and uh, basically go to the the mental and the heart, and we're going to talk to a really wonderful guy named Kenny. So, Mike, tell us a little bit about Kenny. Kenny Mintz was my first boss as a PA. He is a retired Army colonel, and he's going to walk coast to coast across the United States of America coming up in April to raise some uh, funds for causes near to his heart, pancreatic cancer, and soldiers here. Okay, we're also going to talk about mushrooms and some COVID updates. We've got a lot of important stuff you're going to see this week in the emergency department. Let's dive right in. I've always had a special place in my heart for my itchy patients, patients that come to the ED because they've got an itchy rash that won't quit. I tell them, you know, in all sincerity, I'd rather be in pain than be itchy. And I got to personally test that theory out this past month. You know, I got some sort of an upper respiratory infection last month. My poor nostrils will attest. I tested COVID uh, negative several times in every which way you could test somebody for COVID. But while I was dealing with that upper respiratory infection, I got hives all over my body. My hands were so swollen, I couldn't even close them fully. I had to pull my wedding ring off before it got too bad. I'm wearing kind of a, like a fakey, one of these silicone rings still, because I'm just kind of terrified of putting it back on, to be honest. And I couldn't sleep because I was scratching myself. It was super rough. Thankfully, I'm getting better, but I'm not out of the woods yet. I'm still taking medications to control my symptoms weeks after the onset of my symptoms. Let's talk about the urticaria that I had 
and that there's more that we can do in the ED than just reaching for the diphenhydramine. Yeah, first, you know, Mike, I want everyone to be precise with their terms. And, you know, I get a, a little bit um, bossy about this, but urticaria is a raised red itchy rash. And it's different from puritis, which is just the sensation of itching, right? That's kind of more of a, a subjective thing. It comes from mast cells and basophils in superficial in the superficial epidermis. When these cells are activated, it leads to the release of things like histamine and other chemicals that cause vasodilation. It's different from angioedema, which has to do with mast cells activating deeper in the dermis and the subcutaneous issues, and it causes other problems. Now, about one in five people will be affected with urticaria in some degree in their lives, and it happens in little kids all the way up to older adults. And sometimes we're going to see um, what we're going to see is really uh, not just the first-line treatments. Um, we want to take some of these next steps. What are they going to be? Right. Well, it's tempting to think of urticaria as some sort of allergic reaction, but that's just one of the reasons you can get urticaria. Different kinds of infections, whether it's from viruses, bacteria, or even parasites can cause urticaria. One common bacterial infection is mycoplasma. And that is one way that you can have urticaria that does not resolve to antihistamines. Thankfully, it does respond to everyone's favorite drug, azithromycin, right? So finally, another use for the Z-Pak. I'm so happy to find that out, okay? Hepatitis A, B, and C can also cause urticaria, and they can even happen before you see kind of like the jaundice and other things we usually associate with hepatitis. Different medications, antibiotics, opioids, muscle relaxants, some anesthesia agents that we use in muscle relaxation, paralytics like vecuronium, succinylcholine, those can cause urticaria, IV contrast, NSAIDs. How about for all you sushi and fish lovers out there, scombroid syndrome can be uh, you know, implicated in urticaria. Even certain physical stimuli, heat, pressure, cold, vibration, all of these things can be triggers for urticaria. The wind. If I blow on you, you get urticaria. <laughs> I mean, that no. can be a pressure vibration thing. So yeah, I guess. Like Certainly. water, like regular water can even cause urticaria. Latex. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So anyways, lots of things. All right. I think it's also important to understand that there are a lot of mimics to urticaria. Urticaria can happen with vasculitis, autoimmune diseases like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and other autoimmune diseases. And like you always say, Mike, it could be cancer. So it always could be cancer. Yeah. Certain malignancies can cause urticaria. But let's talk about the physical exam. As much as you all know that I love this, the hallmark of urticaria is that the lesions come and then they go away within 24 hours. And even sometimes during the course of an emergency department stay, there should be no residual lesions or pain to the area. If there are, that can be a clue that maybe this is more of a vasculitis or something else. In an otherwise well-appearing patient presenting solely for the urticaria, a big lab workup in the ED or especially in the urgent care is not really indicated. There could be other things that could be helpful down the road as an outpatient, like maybe a CBC, a CMP, LFTs. But if you weren't already ordering these things for another reason in the ED, you probably shouldn't be ordering them just for the urticaria. How about treatment? Sometimes patients come to us without having done anything, which is kind of easy to treat those. But sometimes they've already tried a few different things. And now we got to figure out, well, what else do we do beyond just saying, hey, we can't help you. The goal here is to relieve the itching in the short term. Thankfully, two-thirds of new onset urticaria will be self-limited and resolve on its own and not progress to chronic urticaria. It was just defined as over six weeks of urticaria. 
Uh, how many times have we said urticaria in this podcast? It's uh, urticaria, urticaria, urticaria. There you go. Kind, Three more. kind of a fun word. All right. So the first thing to try are antihistamines. And I think that it's tempting for us to reach for the Benadryl. Benadryl, um, hydralazine, uh, these first generation antihistamines have issues. Um, obviously, the sedating aspect can be a problem for people who need to stay awake. But we're talking about anticholinergic side effects, things like urinary retention, constipation, and people already taking medications that can cause anticholinergic effects. These effects can be um, not great for patients. So I feel kind of silly telling folks to take over-the-counter medications for things they came to the ED for, but come on. Come on. There has to there has to be some sometimes that you know you wish people had done this. But again, we're very kind and gracious and we and we help patients along. There's no hard evidence that over the counter second generation antihistamines are any less effective for urticaria than first generation antihistamines. These second generation antihistamines like uh cetirazine, loratadine, and uh fexofenadine are non sedating, but they are usually less sedating. So there are also other special versions of these second-generation drugs like levocetirazine and desloratadine. These medications basically produce the same antihistamine effect at half the dose. So if people are having good relief with regular versions of these medications, but there are some side effects that you don't like, maybe you can try these drugs instead. So don't write off um, uh, one drug over another here So or a class. Something else that can be lacking in terms of large studies, but does have some backing in some smaller studies, is an H2 antihistamine. So we think of these in like as, you know, reflux medications for esophageal reflux or heartburn. So these are H2 receptor inhibitors, H2RI drugs, but at their heart, chemically, they're antihistamines. These are drugs like hemotidine, cimetidine. uh, And so these are drugs you can add on to using the H1 antihistamine, like all the other ones we just mentioned, the first and second generation. How about glucocorticoids, steroids? There have been some small trials in you know, these acute urticarial um, patients here that suggest that steroids don't additionally cause a better or faster resolution of urticaria than antihistamines on their own. If someone has not yet maxed out therapy on a combination of H1 and H2 antihistamines, then I wouldn't reach for the steroids then. But if they've already kind of like tried different combinations of H1 and H2s, then maybe that's a good time to go for the steroids. For the steroids there, we'd be talking about prednisone and then prednisolone in our younger patients because it's, you know, the liquid suspension here, you'd want to max out at about 60 milligrams at the course of, oh, speaking of pediatric patients, hello, Andrew, my buddy Andrew here. Come on the podcast, Andrew. We're going to have a little guest host here. Who do you think is on? This is Andrew. Hey, well, one is one Andrew. of your nine children. And you know, it's funny, um, you know, uh, uh, although we're being interrupted, I got to tell you, everybody who's been working from home certainly knows that these issues occur. Um, but it, it, it just shows that we are real people too, Mike. We are real people. So yes, I, I have to be. My batteries have to be changed like everybody else, right? Just like all the other real people out there. You yeah, know? but you know, actually, I also wanted to say, um, kids in urticaria is such a different animal. I feel like when we see these patients, myself, you know, have, having uh, to be a ped specialist, this is this is sometimes a little more difficult, right? So I just think um, 
you know, regardless if we're giving prednisone or prednisolone or, or trying to figure out what's wrong with this kid or the kid's itching or not itching this, it's, it's heavy, right? Cause you're dealing with the kid and the parent. And I think we could do a whole segment just on pediatric, um, urticaria, but I do want you to sort of finish telling us a little bit more about some of these other treatments. Right. So, um, the, uh, real quick, the prednisolone, prednisone, either way, you're kind of maxing out at 60 milligrams a day. Um, some guidelines say taper over five to seven days, but honestly, going hard 60 milligrams every day for five days, depending on weight-based dosing, et cetera, is just as good as tapering and probably even better. You might have heard that there are IV formulations of some of these second-generation antihistamines. There's even IV Benadryl slash diphenhydramine, IV hydroxyzine. Uh, again, none of these drugs uh, has been shown to work better for pure urticaria than the oral versions here. So it sounds like a good idea for someone, hey, well, they've got a rash and they're vomiting. Well, why don't I give them the IV version of this? Or wouldn't it work faster or better? And none of those things is really the case. By the way, if your patient with really bad urticaria is also vomiting, I would want to take a second look at that patient and make sure they're not in anaphylaxis, which is a totally different animal than pure urticaria. And we're talking about using epinephrine as our first line drug. Yes, we give things like fluids and antihistamines and steroids to these patients anaphylaxis here, but really there is no replacement for epinephrine early and repeating it often if you need to for someone you think is an anaphylaxis. Yeah. And some of actually these um, really bad cases of urticaria where maybe you're not so sure and, and you really just want to be self-protecting here. I mean, I've given it lots of times to what I would call a stable, actually that's kind of a dangerous word to use, a concerning patient that's still breathing and, you know, interacting with me, but I, it's like, I don't want this to progress any, any further. Totally. So, yeah. So how about the dose, okay, of the antihistamines themselves? Because urticaria usually self-resolves. There aren't many studies specifically on acute urticaria and updosing on these antihistamines. However, there is good safety data in updosing second generation antihistamines in adults and children for chronic spontaneous urticaria. There's no reason why you could not extrapolate that safety data to a person having a short term urticaria and using these updosed antihistamines for a shorter period of time that were studied. We will have some studies in the show notes that talk about people who have double, tripled, and even quadrupled doses of second generation antihistamines. Right. I'm currently on twice daily dosing of loratadine and famotidine, and it's going really well, but I'm still having urticaria weeks after my first day of symptoms. So it's been kind of a journey for me. In short, don't just think of urticaria as an allergic reaction to something. There's lots of different causes. Be aware of different urticaria mimics and how you can kind of pick those out, like maybe lesions that don't resolve in 24 hours or they're being pain. Lean on your non-sedating PO antihistamines first over your sedating antihistamines or giving IV antihistamines. Add in your H2 receptor inhibitors like famotidine or cimetidine and maybe consider updosing your second generation antihistamines as an option even before you go for the steroids. All right. So we're going to go right into now the sort of hot topic of our podcast this month. Now, we, we took it easy on you with the urticaria, but we're going to lay it on now. This is foreign bodies in the vagina, toxic shock syndrome, and foreign bodies in the rectum. Now, don't turn out. This is going to be, excuse me, don't tune out. 
Um, this is going to be a very respectful conversation. We're going to talk about foreign body in the rectum and vagina. In fact, I, I usually have a few patients um, a year with this issue. And actually, I was listening to Howard, one of Howard Stern's old podcasts was talking about this topic. I was actually trying to listen to Al Michaels interview, which I eventually found it was really great, by the way, because I used to live in Cincinnati and we know we have Super Bowl coming up. But I wanted to bring to light here on the podcast this important topic in emergency medicine, not on the way Howard Stern talks about these things. But but <laughs> by the way, did you know that Howard Stern's daughter is an uh, NP, a nurse practitioner? I thought oh, that wow. was really interesting. Maybe we could get her on the show. Um, anyway, this next topic and the case studies are very important. Um, and I feel they're important for a variety of reasons. Uh, they're difficult and they are concerning. And we're going to talk really about how we approach that patient and then a little bit about toxic shock as well. I think when you told me you were going to talk about these topics, I went into toxic shock. Uh, Yeah. So... I, I think, again, this is a tough subject, and there's more at play than just um, something in the orifice, okay? In fact, uh, I was doing an internet search, and I didn't really find too many podcasts about this, at least those that are related to emergency medicine. Other venues, yes, I did find, but I digress. First, I feel there are certain people who mock patients and cases that involve foreign body insertion. There's always one juvenile coworker. Second, clinicians play a crucial role in removing these objects for the patient without judgment or ridicule. And the ER is the place to go for an emergency, okay? Um, even though this may have been a preventable emergency, right? Um, maybe it wasn't. Maybe this is an assault, but we'll talk about that later. Sometimes several um, sensitive things can come up during these conversations, And really what's important here is that you also make sure there's no underlying abuse, mental illness, or other trouble brewing. Um, Or if this was just an act that they did for fun, to feel good, whatever, which people do for their own reasons, that part is not my business. What is my business is letting them know that I'm here to help them and I want to take care of their issue. I also ask safety questions about how it happened in a general and even tone that is more informative um, and objective than subjective. I love that. Let's talk about a few cases you may see in the ER and how to approach them. Let's start with vaginal foreign bodies. Uh, You know, after you hopefully remove the foreign body successfully, there's always other discussions that kind of follow on, usually things about like, do I do some sort of irrigation or douching of the vagina for kind of like cleanliness and upkeep? Is there a, and not just as a patient later on, but as the clinician after you remove the foreign body, you know? Does a specialist need to be involved in when? Do I try to retrieve the object? Do I need imaging? Are there antibiotics needed? How concerned should I be about toxic shock syndrome? And how do I know if someone actually has it? So we're going to go into all these questions and help you treat this patient as professionally as possible. Yeah, so let's start with the patient, Kara. She's 19-year-old female. She comes in for a foul odor in the vagina. And she may be reluctant to tell the triage nurse that she thinks there's a tampon left in her vagina. And so the triage nurse puts her in the fast track in a hallway without a gown. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty classic that these patients are in in hallways or they're triaged as ESI level four or five, and they're just left in the waiting room. 
please educate nursing staff that these pelvic complaints do not belong in the hallway or a waiting room. I can't discharge them from triage, okay? Let's put them into a private room or at least a room with a curtain. And, and if we have to do something like that, then there, there's ways we can move patients around. But in the end, this patient's path of discharge, it leads through a private room of some sort. And, and I, that curtain room, I mean, I know the pandemic is going on, but I mean, no one wants to talk about this. There's only a curtain separating them and their neighbor here. So best thing, a private room, it's usually a short visit in the room anyways, and they can be pulled out of that private room, kind of musical chairs, as you will, and be put in that hallway bed, maybe afterwards, okay? When it's time to go back and discharge discharge instructions, you're going to want to find a private area again, and the hallway is just not the place to do this. So um, really just be aware of that and, uh, and, 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 and uh, you know, think about if the shoe was on the other foot. You'd want to be in a place that was more private if you had something more sensitive going on with you. Yeah, Mike, you can say it. Shame on you for if you're doing this. Come on, I'm going to ring the shame bell. <laughs> ah, I'm, I'm oh, ringing wow. the, it's the shame bell. Is that what that is? Yeah, it's St. Francis. So oh, okay, us. very well. <laughs> so let's just say, Kara, she's in a room. She's in a gown. We do an exam. The best thing to do is ask all the questions first. Don't ask them these questions while you're doing the pelvic exam, all right? You're not – oh, it's just – you cannot focus on anything except something physically being in your personal space. Like you're not going to answer personal questions while that's occurring. So sit down and talk to your patient before you put that speculum in. You know, once you talk to Kara, you found out that she finished her period two weeks ago, and sometimes she puts more than two tampons in her vagina during menstrual cycles because it's just so heavy. So this is a great time to kindly tell a patient the right way to use tampons and other feminine products. Maybe she did not get that information as a kid. You don't know. Hell, my mom certainly didn't go through all these details with me about how to put on tampons. I didn't have YouTube. I mean, I don't even know if there's YouTube videos out there about how to put on tampon, put in tampons, but Maybe I should research that for you guys. But, you know, I think uh, probably I walked around with a tampon half out of my vagina for my teenage years. But anyway, TMI per usual, per usual, I just want this to be a lesson for our listeners that you need to tell people how to do things. That is your job. We constantly say that to you on the show. Um, we talk about, you know, physical exam being important. We talk about teaching your patients. We talk about you taking responsibility, those types of things. That's your job. So tampon insertion, um, that might be something you need to brush up on. So if you're someone that doesn't know how to do that, i.e. you're a male and have never had to do it, ask a female that you feel close to to maybe explain that to you. I'm not going to uh, actually do that on the show today. But very important that you know you take these tampons out within four to six hours. Remove it if it feels uncomfortable. Seek care if you get a fever. And certainly never have sexual intercourse with a tampon inserted. And gosh, again, never place more than one in there, okay? In case you're wondering, there are multiple YouTube videos on how to insert tampons made by several different people. So, so that's out there for folks if you uh, want to look that up and kind of get that going. How much YouTube learning do we do before certain procedures in the ED? Like there's been times when I do like, let me look up YouTube and remind myself about, you know, approaches for different uh, injections and stuff. So yeah, that's also on YouTube folks. So yeah. Uh, by the way, did we have Dave and Ricky put a, uh, like a parental guidance warning in the show beforehand? We probably should do that in post. I'm not sure if this is for kids or not for kids. Okay. So I had to explain to Kara how to use tampons. All right. I took a really good history um, you know, I sort of took it to the next level about her heavy menstrual cycles. And in the end, she did end up following up with GYN and put her on some birth control. So, but let's get back to the foreign body in the vagina. After all this questioning, I did her pelvic exam. Like I said, 
Um, and again, if you're not doing the basics of a pelvic exam correctly with a chaperone and, you know, comfort level and all those things, again, shame on you. I ring the shame bell, ringing the shame bell today a lot. Um, so I just wanted to say that after um, I took a look in there, I saw that there were not just one, but there were two tampons and they were sort of like these smaller tampons that some women just lose up in there. Um, they're very small for like a light flow. Um, and then uh, I removed those, no problem, visualized them and no material was left behind. I mean, they're not going past the cervix. You know, a lot of patients think, hey, um, is this like up in my brain now? No, it's not going past this cervix. Okay. Uh, but I did insert about 50 to 100 mLs of room temperature normal saline to clean around the cervix because there just was some uh, buildup there. Um, I didn't take a sample or a specimen, wasn't needed. And that was it for Kara. I told her to follow up with GYN um, and to only put in one tampon, consider using uh, super tampons. Um, you know, we had a whole discussion about this. Um, but uh, she was afebrile and, and she didn't really have any pain. So toxic shock syndrome or another issue really wasn't on my agenda today with her, but I did counsel her on potentially um, this in the future. Now, before Mike, you dive into toxic shock syndrome, I want you uh, really to ask yourself and audience to ask yourself, how often are you getting vaginal samples for a female patient with sepsis-like symptoms or flu-like symptoms without an obvious source? Meaning when you have this really sick patient, you're getting pan cultures, you're getting blood cultures. Um, you're also getting x-rays, um, urinalysis, uh, urine culture. But hey, I didn't really think to myself, oh, need to get a vaginal culture. I mean, no, this is not our first go-to. But we could be missing 50% of toxic shock syndrome cases. Um, and I just wanted to throw that out there into the universe to get your brain spinning. Yeah, my eyebrows, uh, you know, went up when we were doing show prep and you asked if I do this because like, no, I don't consider this usually. But yeah, we have to get back to that question. First, let's do a quick review of toxic shock syndrome. It is a rare, thankfully, life-threatening complication of certain types of bacterial infection. Toxic shock syndrome results from the toxins produced by Staph aureus bacteria. And the condition can also be produced by group A streptococcus bacteria as well. So group A strep 2. Menstrual TSS is another flavor of this. And it's generally thought to be caused by when Staph aureus produces your toxic shock syndrome toxin 1, otherwise known as TSST1, in the patient. Four factors are thought to be required for the development of the menstrual toxic shock syndrome. Number one. Vaginal colonization with a toxigenic strain of Staph aureus. Number two, production of that TSST1. Three, penetration of a sufficient concentration of TSST1 across the epithelium to cause a disease. And four, absence or insufficient titers of any sort of neutralizing antibody to this toxin. Yeah, so please note, uh, toxic shock is not something that is just... Uh, left for retained tampons in the vagina. It can also affect um, anyone, including men, children, postmenopausal women, and risk factors for the syndrome include skin wounds, surgery, um, and certainly the use of tampons, diaphragms, or even those menstrual cups. So interestingly, as a ped specialist, I found this uh, to be a, a, an interesting fact. 
So toxic shock was first described in a series of pediatric cases in around 1978 in the literature, and the incident rose sharply in 1980. More than 800 cases of uh, menstrual-related TSS occurred largely among young women, and clinical illness arose during menstruation and was associated with the use of absorbent tampons. So the incident of toxic shock declined sharply after the withdrawal of some of these tampon brands. So something was going on there. But subsequently, between 2000 and 2003, the incident rose slightly again, and in one report, um, almost tripled. So these cases occurred mostly, again, among women of menstrual age, but included uh, both menstrual and non-menstrual cases. We'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. But again, the rise or, or spike may have been related just to the fact that we had better testing and we were investigating this more. So, you know, we, we mm -hmm. certainly um, were on, on the prowl for some of these symptoms. I'll be looking more for it now, too, that you've kind of opened my eyes to it. You know, here are some symptoms of toxic shock syndrome. A sudden high fever, hypotension, vomiting or diarrhea, a bright red rash on the palms and soles or a desquamating kind of peeling rash on the palms or soles, confusion, muscle aches, redness of the eyes, mouth, and throat, hopefully not, but seizures, headaches, and there can be other multi-organ uh, disease as well if this you know toxin is being seeded throughout the bloodstream. Yeah, so I like to kind of walk our listener always through sort of what we're doing for this patient. So let's say a patient comes in, they have a fever of unknown origin, um, they're not feeling well, you're not quite really sure like what their issue is, they're telling you some of these symptoms that Mike just told you. Um, so you're like, okay, maybe I'll get some labs. Lab abnormalities usually reflect some kind of shock or organ failure, right? We're, we're sort of looking for this multi-organ complication. Um, elevated BUN and creatinine, renal failure, elevated liver function, and possibly elevated CPK, um, possibly other elevated inflammatory response markers. But UpToDate has a nice little table if you want to go check that out. This is really an inflammatory process of what's going on here. So you think to yourself, like, what's actually happening here? It's an inflammatory process. Cultures, including blood cultures, uh, are we're saying from the mucosal sites, um, blood, mucosal, vaginal canal, of course, in, of course, in suspected menstrual um, toxic shock, uh, wounds, um, and even from the nose, they should all be obtained. You know, and the detection of this staph aureus in the blood culture is not required for the diagnosis of uh, toxic shock because, you know what, mm -hmm. only 5% of the cases, according to the literature, 5% are going to show this in the blood. You're going to find the uh, staph toxin in from the wound or the mucosal site or the vaginal area. So any foreign material in the vaginal canal, like we talked about, should be removed immediately. Um, if that's your, like what you're looking for, of course, certainly that may not be something that someone's telling you when they present to the ER and they're super sick. Um, but the other little pearl, like we, they don't teach you this in school is that when we have a trauma patient, a female trauma patient, we always, uh, I would say almost always put in a Foley catheter. And when we're there, we look to see if there's a tampon inserted and we remove that um, during, uh, you know, if there's an intubation or the patient is uh, unconscious. So again, again, one of those job pearls that no one tells you, make sure you take a look when you're doing your rectal exam that there's no foreign body down there. Because if they're going to the ICU, that tampon's going to hang out there for a real long time. Yeah, I can't say they went over that in our ATLS recertification a few months ago. So that's a they great should. I'm going to do a guest lecture. They, they totally should. Yes, no, I'm not totally serious. You know, let's also talk about this, right? 
leukocytosis, like that white blood cell count, okay, that may be absent in these patients. So as far as an absolute leukocytosis, but look at beyond the number of the WBCs, the total number of mature and immature neutrophils usually exceeds 90%, with immature neutrophils accounting for 25 to 50% of the total number of neutrophils. You can also see things like thrombocytopenia and anemia in the first few days, and that's usually accompanied by a prolonged PT and PTT time. So, you know, those coags that are auto-ordered when you're doing a uh, code sepsis, go ahead and leave those PT and PTT checked. So you can look for that because disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC can also be going on. Right. And you have all your specialists involved at this point. You have a really sick patient. You know, you're involving your physician colleagues, maybe even another nurse practitioner or PA infectious disease. And we're going to kind of get to that at the end. But also interesting fact, toxic shock can reoccur. People who have had it once can get it again. And if you've had toxic shock um, from any prior serious staph or strep infection, you know, you're not going to use tampons. You're going to obviously have patients keep that in their medical history. Um, and again, this can reoccur in uh, days to months after the initial episode. Now, there is also a variant of toxic shock described in patients with AIDS, and this presentation is characterized by a subacute illness with persistent, um, uh, this rash, the, de the desquamation, the mucosal injection, the fever, the hypotension, and again, really shocky-like picture with an inflammatory response. And according to the CDC and up-to-date, a confirmed case of toxic shock is a case that meets the following clinical criteria. And I, I just really want to put this out there first because we're going to later try to tell you that you shouldn't use this criteria. So I'm going to tell you that criteria um, because it is important that you know it, but I'm telling you, you're probably going to miss some cases if you chalk up your diagnosis to meeting all of these criterias. And We'll talk about criteria and guidelines a little later. I keep saying that we're going to talk about things later, but there's just so much information, Mike, it's hard to get to today. So again, they have to meet this criteria for toxic shock, fever, hypotension, um, diffuse rash or desquamation, um, and the involvement of at least three organ systems with cultures negative for alternative pathogens or serologic tests negative for other conditions if you obtain them. And a patient who is missing one of the above clinical criteria may be considered as a probable case, but the CDC criteria was established for epi epidemiologic surveillance and should not be used to exclude a case that is highly suspicious for toxic shock, even if all the criteria is not met. So if you're thinking it, which you may be now more, um, then you need to pursue it. Okay. In settings where further lab investigation is feasible, you can do some additional tests that can help you make like a retrospective diagnosis of TSS, okay? So you can look for staph aureus isolates and test them for toxin production in research laboratories. So we're kind of going next level on our lab work here. In addition, you can uh, you know assess acute and convalescent serum for antibody responses to the various staph aureus exotoxins like that. TSST1 we were talking about here. The presence of a strain of Staph aureus that produces toxin in a patient who does not have acute phase antibody to the toxin is highly suggestive of TSS. Now, treatment. Treatment for TSS can vary. Antibiotics will have to be diagnosed with infectious disease, but they include coverage for Staph and 
MRSA, and also sometimes IVIG is also used. Remember, this is an inflammatory reaction. Yes, it started with a bacteria, but it produced a toxin, and the body's reacting not just to the bacteria, but to the toxin as well. And so this IVIG, you would use it other, you know, similar weird inflammatory type reactions, you know, like Guillain-Barre, that's an option here. How long you would use antibiotics, how long you'd use IVIG, is not really subtle in the literature here. ID is going to want to be your best friend on this one. Yeah, I like this single case study coming back to HIV AIDS patients and, and one just one case report of a 39-year-old male with HIV um, infection had diffuse erythema on the arms and legs. He had that uh, desquamation of his arms, hands, feet, and eyebrows. He had some uh, pharyngeal uh, erythema and a lesion that grew out a TSST1 producing staph aureus, okay? He was given IVIG 200 milligrams per kilogram per day and um, that was administered for five days after he failed antibiotic therapy. So basically they thought that this IVIG was something that was more useful for him. Again, super complicated, cool topic um, of, of treating with IVIG. We do it a lot with kids, with Kawasaki's, and sometimes now COVID. So just something to keep in the back of your mind. And it was with the IVIG that this person finally got better, right? It wasn't with the right. antibiotics, but yeah, the IVIG is what yeah. turned him around. So yep. super cool there. Let's talk the downsides. Death associated with TSS usually occurs within the first few days of hospitalization, but it may occur as late as two weeks after. When we're talking about why fatalities occur, we can attribute it to things like refractory cardiac arrhythmias, cardiomyopathy, irreversible respiratory failure, and rarely bleeding caused by the coag defects like the DIC we were talking about here. This shock-like picture can kind of help us predict what we could maybe do to treat the patient, prevent these issues if we can. Yeah. Now, I want to end this, this particular segment by talking about a little controversy with the CDC guidelines in toxic shock. Like I said, we would get to. I looked at a recent French April 2021 paper in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease entitled Menstrual, <coughs> excuse me, Menstrual Toxic Shock Syndrome, a French nationwide multi-center retrospective study. And they acknowledge that our literature and study of this topic is basically shit. Okay? They would say merd in uh, merd. French. Yeah. Merd. Anyway, this was a multi-center retrospective cohort study of patients with a clinical diagnosis of menstrual um, I'm just going to abbreviate it to MTSS here, Menstrual Toxic Shock Syndrome, MTSS, admitted between January um, 2005 to December 2020 and 43 French um, pediatric patients um, were in the study and 36 adult patients were in the study in the ICU. And basically their aim, they were doing the study Great paper, by the way. I very rarely say that. I read a lot of papers. This was a great paper. The aim of the study was to describe the clinical features of short-term prognosis as well as to assess these 2011 CDC diagnostic criteria in critically ill patients with MTSS. And they felt the CDC guidelines missed potentially 48%, half wow. of the TSS patients. Let me tell you, again, absolutely fabulous read. So they looked at these this patient population. Um, I'm going to let you take a look at the paper yourself. But essentially, I think it's kind of uh, a reminder that the CDC gives us guidelines and that the and that basically 
the disease doesn't always follow the guidelines, so nor should you. I think um, if you don't have all five of these criteria, you know, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be considering this as a possible issue. So um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some additional laboratory criteria that you might want to consider. Um, don't forget that maybe you want to get a uh, LP or maybe you want to add on these other weird tests like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, um, Lepto or measles or something like that. So um, Mike, you know, again, we're going off of the CDC guidelines. So why don't you tell us a little bit of what the CDC guidelines do suggest as a probable case versus what the CDC again says is a confirmed case. Okay, gotcha. Well, a probable case is a case which meets the laboratory criteria that you kind of mentioned and which four of the five clinical criteria described above are present. A confirmed case which meets the lab criteria and in which all five of the clinical criteria described above are present, including disquamation, unless that patient dies before disquamation occurs. So that's one of those things like if you're lucky, you get to the point where your skin peels off your body. Okay. <laughs> I think what this yeah, I would say this is a terrible disease. I was actually looking for this in me when I was having my urticaria. I was like, do I have any sort of weird oh, disquamation God. going on? Am I dying? But um, you know, I think this teaches us that these are, again, like you said, guidelines. And diseases don't have to read the textbook before they come into the ED. Um, if you get the feeling that this is something different than just a COVID sepsis, or like, yes, of course we can find uh, we can find the infection. That's COVID. There is no bacterial culture growing out of the blood or anywhere else here. Consider this toxic shock syndrome. You know, in that French study you mentioned at ICU admission, no patient met that 2011 CDC criteria for confirmed. MTSS, okay, where five criteria have to be met. Only half, 52% fulfilled the criteria for probable diagnosis, and 48% met only one or two or three of the criteria at ICU admission. And that would not have been categorized. So this is one of those things where you have to get ahead of it. You know, it's not enough to just wait till they're dead and go, oh, look at that. They've got some disquamation going on. I guess they were a toxic sock syndrome patient. You have to kind of anticipate and get ahead of the patient, get ahead of was the that your, process. Was that your infectious disease a physician impression? Yeah. Huh. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess it was TSS. Oh, well, oh, hey, good, good one for the papers. Yeah. So, well, you know, uh, and like we said, um, vaginal samples in these patients were incredibly helpful to make that final diagnosis in this French study. Right. And, you know, we joke about our, our specialists. I got to tell you, infectious disease, again, one of my favorite physician groups to work with. And the residents are just so fantastic. They always want to get like this big, long history. And I absolutely love them. So uh, lots of love to you. Um, but again, interesting topic. Um, good one to brush up on. Otherwise healthy, well-appearing female patients like Kara, like we talked about with no other symptoms, she can be discharged. You don't need to put her on antibiotics. You don't need multiple vaginal irrigations. I usually tell women, take a bath, clean. You know, don't sit in the bathtub actually for more than five to eight minutes, which by the way, is very hard to do for some people. You know, some people want to sit in there for an hour, um, but avoid anything in the vagina. And I say these words, nothing in the vagina that includes penis, foreign body, tampons, or other for a full two weeks. And there can be a foul odor present for the next oh, couple of days, but it should improve. Um, and if it doesn't, then they need to go back to GYN or again, come back to see you if they can't. So, I, you know, we end this segment by saying maybe when we culture and swab everything, 
we need to consider the pelvis and vaginal infections like TSS can be possible. Well, while we're down here talking about foreign bodies in the vagina and toxic shock syndrome, Martha is going to go next now to foreign bodies in the rectum. Right. So again, difficult topic. Look, treacherous, I will say, but I am sure that you've heard patients say things like, I fell in the shower and that's how I, I got that there. Or possibly they have some other story. But again, being respectful of the fact that, hey, this person's there. How can I help them? This thing is in their hole and I got to get it out, right? It doesn't matter. It's an orifice. There's something in it. You got to get it out. Right. This can be do. even more tricky than a retained tampon. That's relatively straightforward. We need to think about the rectum and the anus and how anatomically they're different and can be harder to access. And sometimes you may need a surgeon or a specialist to get into the rectal cavity. Um, once things go up, it's different than the vagina. The vagina has kind of like a defined endpoint. But once things go up into the rectum, they can go way up into the rectum. And maybe you can't reach it as an ER clinician. That's right. So again, um, shout out uh, to our surgeons here because these are difficult <laughs> cases for them as well. So with that being said, let's talk about this case. This is a case I had years ago. A patient came in for rectal and back pain. That was her complaint. When I spoke to her, she said that it just hurt. It just hurt. She felt like something was up there. She didn't give me any other details. I asked her very difficult questions. Um, and then she said, well, I did use, you know, a uh, uh, vibrator tool to relax her lower back muscles. And then oddly, she felt something sort of pop. So she said to me, just sort of popped. I was confused. I tried to ask her again more specifically, you know, was the vibrator in her rectum? And I actually think that sometimes patients don't realize like what the rectum is. So I said, did you put it up, up your butt area? You know, sometimes you just got to use terms that people are more comfortable with. Um, and uh, I got a pelvic exam um, because uh, she said that she didn't know really where things were. Um and I said, you know what? Let's just get a, a, a quick image. Let's take take a quick look with an x-ray. And um, it wasn't just one, but there were several pieces of vibrator within in the rectal cavity. I've not ever recommended folks use a device like that to relax uh, lumbosacral pain, but something I'll consider now for sure. Okay, well, what did you then? <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right, so I went back. And I talked to her, you know, I told you guys, maintain professionalism. I'm putting back on my, my professional face. Because, I'm just listen, saying I've never considered it, you know, like it's something that's yeah, third are, or fourth line treatment, I suppose. Look, I laugh about people with broken ankles too, all right? I laugh about everything. But uh, again, be very conscious here. I went back to talk to this patient and she said, well, I guess it fell off um, and went up there. And we know that's not really possible, Mike, but it, 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 who cares? The end game is still the same. It's Bad a better excuse than I fell on it, I suppose, but all right. Yeah, okay. I you know, spoke to one of our on-call surgeons. He said, okay, look, get an anoscope. We looked at the images. Try to remove it. And I said, well, there's a couple of pieces. So we used some topical lidocaine, which is totally safe in the rectal area um, and around the anus. For We use it for hemorrhoids all the time. She did not tolerate that exam well. Mm. And what's you know really impossible to do is remove small objects that are broken inside the rectal cavity so um yeah i thought look he needs to come in and maybe use some propofol and a larger anoscope to take a look and it's just these patients sometimes need to go to the or um to get things removed yeah you know what you mentioned the lidocaine i love that so what i've ordered or what i started ordering recently for my rectal exams um is the kind of like 
Eurojet lidocaine that is often used in urethral catheterization, I'll have my nurse instill that in the rectum and wait five minutes and then I'll do my, my rectal exam there. So I love that idea. Yes, totally safe to put lidocaine up in the rectum as well. Um, yeah. So, okay, went to the OR. So that patient education, I guess, was done by the surgeon later on, unfortunately. Huh? Yeah, right. So not much education done by me, but I did learn a lot, okay, from this case. This is a good case to have the specialists involved, very respectful. Don't be on the phone out in the, in you know, in front of all the nurses saying, like, I got this foreign body in the rectum. Everyone's turning their head. Like, not appropriate, okay? You don't need to announce that. Patients do hear what's going on in the hallway. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of things that can go up there. There's fruit, toy cars, light bulbs. We'll talk about a couple case studies in a moment here, but... The rectum, again, is a very different procedure. You don't want to cause damage. It's a lot easier to look in the vagina and with a regular pelvic speculum than use an anoscope. It is difficult. And if you're not trained to do that, don't just do that. I mean, it's it's clearly I don't need to say that to you all. But sometimes we think, oh, like you said, I'll watch a video and I'll do this. And, and this is not one of those times. <laughs> so there's a great article in the World Journal of Emergency Surgery that reminds us. Um, entrapped anorectal foreign bodies are being encountered more frequently in clinical practice. Although entrapped foreign bodies are most often related to sexual behavior, they can also be from the result of an ingestion or a sexual assault. So don't forget ingestion as a cause either, which we're going to talk about body packing and body stuffing in just a moment. Looking at one paper, this one paper, they looked at 15 patients from 1999 to 2009 with foreign bodies in the rectum. And again, they remind us in the, in the paper, like, be very respectful of these patients. They too were ringing the shame bell. Um, but, um, you know, they had to, to diagnose these and treat them and basically information about how these people presented, what was in their treatment strategies, outcomes. They were all documented and they retrospectively reviewed the medical records of all these unusual patients. All the patients were males. Their mean age was 48. And the objects were things from um, a body spray can, like the impulse body spray can stuff, um, a bottle itself, a dildo, an eggplant, a brush, a tea glass, a ballpoint pen, a wishbone. Um, and they found that the wishbone was actually an oral ingestion. But 12 objects were removed transanally by anal dilation under general anesthesia. And these patients required, um, three of them, excuse me, three of them required a laparotomy. Wow. And talk about emergent, right? Again, specialist involved, foreign body and the rectum, almost always, okay? Routine retrosigmoidoscopies were performed after removal to ensure that everything was okay. And they did find some perforations, okay? There were some lacerations as well. Um, nobody died, which was great. Uh, although I'm sure that this was probably the most traumatic experience of their life. What they concluded from this study was that foreign bodies in the rectum should be managed in a well-organized manner. Um, you can start by confirming the diagnosis with plain abdominal radiographs and rectal examination. If you're going to try to manually extract something back there without any anesthesia, as far as general anesthesia, that's really only possible for your very low-lying inferior presenting objects here. Patients with more higher lying foreign bodies, they're generally going to require general anesthesia to, uh, to achieve that complete relaxation that's required to pass this object through the anal sphincters. Okay, Open surgery should only be reserved for patients with 
perforation. Peritonitis or some sort of an impaction or for the foreign body. So often we can do, um, you know, more just extraction PR if there's none of those things going on. Yeah. So again, the authors kind of went through a bunch of different things that can be in there. Um, some of the other things, you know, that you don't really think about the Christmas ornaments they talked about. I mean, anything can go up there. Okay. Period. Just know that, that anything can go up there and the list goes on and on. I'm worried that they were doing these segments here just to cover some weird internet searches you've done, Martha. But that's okay. We're going to keep going. All right. Patients may complain of vague abdominal pain and not just straight up telling you that this happened. You know, and that's a great topic. It's a great thing to look for with all these different kind of sensitive um, diagnoses, things like testicular torsion or stuff like that. The presentation is not always just straightforward. Sometimes it's just kind of a vague um, complaint and you have to kind of pursue further here. They may not admit to the actual issue. There may be rectal bleeding or urethral bleeding, constipation, lots of things that patients, especially if they're young or otherwise they may be embarrassed, may not be willing to describe up front, even maybe not even just to a triage nurse. You have to kind of get them more to a private area and then talk to them more there. So if you, you hear this kind of like hesitancy in the discussion when you're in a room with like the triage nurse, the tech getting vital signs, and you Maybe you kind of go, ah, I can tell this person kind of wants to be a little more private in their discussion, and you, you pull them aside, okay? While you're doing the initial exam here, you want to look, if you have your thinking cap on, for something bad inserted in the terms of it's doing something bad, not a judgment call or anything, signs of infection or perforation. That may be evident in your complicated patients just from your initial exam, you know, pain with percussion or rebound tenderness, stuff like that. That rectal exam is going to be essential, of course, in the diagnosis of these rectal foreign bodies, but it should be performed after the x-ray of the adrenal is performed to prevent accidental injury, not just to the patient, but also to you. You're hearing about these things like broken, um, you know, vibrators, glass objects, things like that. So you don't want to be reaching in there and having to deal with uh, one of the topics we had on a previous podcast with regards to um, bloodborne illnesses, Okay. Yeah, Before, you know, Mike, yeah. sorry, there, there is a one specific case uh, that I saw in the literature of a employee um, that was doing a rectal exam, a clinician, and there was something sharp in the rectum, and they weren't sure if they stuck their finger or not. Uh, so, you know, that call to HR is like, well, I had a patient with a foreign body in the rectum, and I did an exam, and I cut my finger, and I'm not really sure what happened there. I mean, that is just something you don't get to say every day, and we don't want you to have to say it. So um, get that image first. Yeah, I love that. Okay, and how about lab evaluation, Martha? Are there labs we need to do here up front? No, don't waste your time on labs. Unless, of course, these patients are going to go to the OR, then you might want to get a type and screen, maybe a baseline CBC. Um, again, the images are the key here. And uh, if you can't really see it or it's kind of confusing, um, you know, you can get a couple of different views. But um, really just try to determine the body, uh, excuse me, the foreign body, its positioning, its shape, its size. And then, of course, make sure there's no presence of a, a pneumoperitoneum in any way. This is the part where we kind of get into some more unsavory parts, uh, aspects of this that could be going on here. Sometimes these foreign bodies are inserted involuntarily. And sometimes these involuntary insertions can be found in the elderly, but also people who are mentally ill or otherwise infirm, and even children. Yeah. Sometimes these objects are retained thermometers or enema tips and maybe it can be aluminum full wrapping from pill containers maybe there are ingested objects that make their way down like 
toothpicks, chicken bones. I've had a patient who was fond of ingesting pieces of uh, plastic, like ballpoint pens, uh, coins and toys, like you mentioned. So keep that in mind as far as elderly patients with constipation and maybe just something is off about their presentation or how they relate to uh, their caregivers. Consider maybe you get a plain film x-ray at least before just going straight to the disimpaction effort. Yeah, I had a patient, a pediatric patient, um, when I worked in rural medicine that would constantly put things um, in their vagina or their rectum, and they would be in the ER once or twice a week for this. It was, um, they were going through a struggle, absolute struggle. And um, uh, really just remember that this can be from an assault and certainly that potentially people could do this for um, a lot of other reasons related to body stuffing and body packing, which we're going to end our last segment with here. Um, one of the most common types um, <clears throat> of places to do this is the vagina for body packing and body stuffing, but some people even put these in ostomies. And once they go in the ostomy, it's, it's uh, wow. Yeah, it's there's some interesting things out there, um, but it doesn't matter whether it's rectal, vaginal, body packing, and body stuffing can be deadly. So the Merck Manual, I love the Merck Manual, has a great write-up to this approach and some fascinating studies in the literature. Body packing is usually heroin or cocaine primarily. That's it. So many other drugs can be used. They smuggle them across the border, and the drugs are basically placed in condoms or packets that are enclosed in several labels, excuse me, layers of latex or wax, and then these body packers are mules, as they call them. They swallow multiple packets. Uh, they That's the, the body stuffing. Um, and then typically they'll take some kind of anti-motility drug to decrease intestinal motility until the packets can be retrieved. Ugh, sounds awful. The total amount of drugs involved represents a super, super lethal dose. So rupture of one of these packets is basically like, uh, you're dead. That's, That's terrible. Wow. Well, you know, yeah. obviously, depending on the drug involved, that is going to lead to certain specific symptoms depending on that drug. Uh, some things you may see are intractable seizures, tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia. Those are common with cocaine. If we're dealing with heroin, some of the things you may see are coma or respiratory depression here. Uh, obviously, intestinal obstruction. Uh, perforation of the intestines, peritonitis, these are also things that you can see. Yeah, so, you know, usually people will, will stuff these packets when they're being arrested quickly to dispose of the evidence. So I think really, um, regardless of whether they swallowed it or they um, inserted it vaginally, rectally, or within an ostomy, um, the diagnosis certainly can be tricky. So do that private interview. And using these terminology, you know, again, with, with terminology, so stuffing technically is when you're about to be picked up by law enforcement and you quickly swallow the drug packets, you know, or, or paraphernalia or what have you. Uh, understandably, you're doing this in more of a hurry. And so it may not be as securely packaged as when you're doing body packing, where there's a more deliberate effort to put more amount of stuff in there. And so the stuffing versus the packing, they both have their own kind of risks there. Um, like you said, doing a private interview, especially if law enforcement happens to be posted in your ER is going to be, you know, very important to do, you know, ask about things like a history of doing this before, uh, you know, consider that pelvic or digital rectal examination, 
Ideally, you know, if we're thinking about something that they're not really uh, disclosing, maybe you get that x-ray beforehand, before you do your uh, digital insertions here. Yeah. And so let's just kind of end with the fact that if you have a patient that has either staffed or packed, um, kind of like that term, uh, no, sorry, stuffed or packed, stuffed or packed, and they're here and you know that they did that. Um, really, you just, you have to admit these patients, you have to observe them. You can't just remove the packet. Um, and you know, if they say, look, I just have one packet in there, you can take it out. I would not trust that. I get, you know, some imaging. I'd watch them because you don't really know. Um, and these people, they could have been pressured or forced, or they could be, you know, again, these, these abused mules, uh, uh, trafficking these drugs. I mean, there's just so many things here at play that I, I really think you need to investigate them further. And then finally, um, you know, the asymptomatic people, uh, whether they're being observed or not, get the, get the toxicologists involved early. They love these cases. They're my third shout out physician of the podcast today. I absolutely love them. They're fantastic. They, they will help you. They will say, well, you know, I, they're up on the body stuffing and packing. They know how much people are, are transporting. They, this is the kind of stuff they look at in their own literature. So, wow, Mike, this was, um, this was a large, uh, vast amount of information today. We covered everything from urticaria to vaginal foreign body to rectal foreign body. What do we have last year? All right. This is going to be our first non-medical guest on the Two View podcast. And it's somebody that I've known for quite a long time now. I'd say um, probably 12 years or so off and on. And this is retired Army Colonel Kenneth Mintz, known by Kenny to a lot of his people, and you can find him at www.kennywalksacrossamerica.com. And you could probably infer from that website title that Kenny's got a pretty big task coming up. He's planning on April the 1st, and not apparently, as I know, as a big April Fool's joke, but he's really planning on walking across America, coast to coast, east to west, to raise money and awareness for a lot of different causes. Colonel Mintz, Kenny, thank you so much for coming on the two of you today. Hey, thanks, Mike. I just just one thing. So uh, most of my content is on my Facebook page, which is Kenny Walks Across America. If you go to KennyWalksAcrossAmerica.com, you'll actually go to my shop. Uh, you can buy one of these cool T-shirts. Um, actually, Kenny, I'm looking at your Facebook page right now, which is actually what really inspired me to have us chat with you today. And I'm looking at all these pictures of Jack. Yeah, Jack the donkey. <laughs> he's my he's my emotional support donkey. <laughs> he puts a smile on my face, and he gets very angry at me when I don't feed him. So ah, it's trained like, me well. Our goal is to get you more likes than Jack the donkey and more awareness than Jack the donkey here. So, you know, I've come to know you, sir, as a soldier. You're a, a West Point graduate. You're a retired infantry colonel after 20-plus years of service with multiple overseas deployments. Uh, we served together in one of the hottest parts of, of Afghanistan, Kinetic, as we used to say. And, and that military aspect of your life is a part of why you're walking. But reading what you've written on your uh, walk on your Facebook page, uh, I feel like perhaps you're primarily walking as more of your mother's son. Can you talk more about your mom and how she's inspired you to take on this pretty big challenge? Yeah, so, I mean, my mom's a big part of it. She's the original inspiration behind this. And I, you know, when I started going through the process of 
making sure that I knew, you know, why was I doing this? Why did I feel compelled to do it? Sequentially, I started with my mom, uh, then I went to my service, and then I went to myself. So I'll talk a little bit about each of those. So, you know, when I was four years old, um, my parents were separated. My mom was very young when she had me. She was 19, so she's, I'm four, she's 23. Um, we were in Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area. And my mom basically wanted to start a new life, and she drove with a Navy family that needed someone to drive a car for them from Washington, D.C. to San Diego. And she had nothing. She had me, a suitcase, you know, and a dream. And, you know, to me, that was always inspiring. And, you know, she got a job. She eventually started her own company with some partners that was pretty successful. And, you know, so that was always an inspiration to me my whole life. And then my mom got pancreatic cancer. And, you know, she was fighting against that cancer for five and a half years, which is a pretty long time. It's a very deadly cancer, as you probably know, all the way through, you know, three bouts of chemo. And then at the end, um, there was nothing left for her. And I took care of her in her last months of her life. And, uh, you know, in her, when she was in hospice and, you know, we had gotten, we were already really close anyway, but, um, in these last, you know, sort of years of her life, you know, I talked to her every day and I spent, you know, the last months of her life with her almost every day. Um, huh. And she, you know, she asked, she knew I was going to, I told her years ago, I was going to do this walk. And she's like, you know, please, you know, raise some money for, for pancreatic cancer um, research. So I will have, I'll have a link to the charity, all my charities on my, on my uh, social media that I'll start in March. Uh, with those links, and, and that you know, the money will flow directly to the the charities. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about the service component. So you know, obviously, you know, I just retired after 34 years from the army. I wanted to do something different with my life. You know, watching my mom go through what she went through, and then having to go back and and you know liquidate. You talked about this the other day. Liquidate her estate. Uh, going through all of her things, and, and it, was, it was obviously very emotional, very tough process, but it sort of gave me an appreciation about, you know, although I loved her home and I loved that it was a meeting place for people, how much stuff we have, and, <laughs> and we yeah. focus so much on stuff and less on experiences and, and living. You know, to me, this was a way to uh, to be more focused on living my life and less focused on, you know, how much money I could make and then how much is enough there. And, you know, when you're laying in your deathbed, you know, you're not caring, caring about that. You're caring about the people that you're close to, your friends and family. And uh, that's what I care about. So the, the service component, um, you know, on the one aspect is... Um, an opportunity for me to hopefully get some veterans to come walk with me because I believe, you know, I think you have a question about this later on, but I feel, I think that, you know, a lot of guys feel disconnected and, uh, they feel isolated and that leads to some bad habits. Right. And, uh, you know, I want to be a good example and say, you know, let's, let's get out in this world, out in this environment 
that we don't pay attention to because we're always in a hurry to get between point A and point B in our lives. Um, and let's just talk and, and, and enjoy the camaraderie that, that, uh, was part of our service and that I believe that shouldn't end. I don't, I don't think that, you know, we should like leave service and then, you know, go back to wherever we came from or wherever we want to go as civilians and then become disconnected. It's just not, it's just not healthy for us. Yeah. You know, actually I would like to get right into that. The, the actual walk when you're out there and kind of ask some of these basic questions that I think a lot of people have on their mind. What are you going to do about provisions, food, water, clothing? How are you doing this? Yeah. So I'm taking the, the lazy man's approach to this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in the army, we have something called the company trains, which is, you know, for an infantry company, you know, it's usually like a vehicle with supplies that's not too far away if you need it. So I'm going to have somebody drive a support vehicle for me. Um, I will have mapped out, you know, where I can stop. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes I'll stay in a hotel or motel. Sometimes I'll stay at a friend's house. Sometimes I'll stay in a campground. But the vehicle is the ultimate rucksack. You know, hey, bring me a ham sandwich or, hey, bring me some more water. Because I'm not going to carry this on my back. Um, that would make this into a survival exercise. And I would become more focused yeah. on just getting a meal and where I was going to sleep and less on, you know, communicating what I'm doing, uh, sharing that experience with people and connecting with people. Well, and that's one way you're looking for assistance too, right? Is I think we're still looking for some people to, to be driving the company trade behind you. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. So, um, it's a big commitment. I mean, I'm probably going to have to, to, to try to get, there are some, there are some options out there, but I have not, that is the one part of this plan that hasn't been nailed down yet is getting my drivers aligned. Um, I would prefer to have the same person the whole time. Um, just because I think it would just be, you know, there's a relationship, there's a, there's a sort of, a, you know, standard operating procedure that, that you could <laughs> sort of establish by working together over a period of time. Um, well, uh, you know, thinking about this, you said you're going to do 20 miles a day, six days a week, right? Yes. So that's, um, 1.2 miles, uh, per hour, which we know you're not going to do. You're probably going to do, you know, five, six, um, hours at a time walking and then that's yeah, six hours a day. <clears throat> right. But I'm, you know, you could just constantly be walking for 24 hours, seven days a week if you wanted to, which... Yeah, I could. It'd probably kill me. Yeah, we wouldn't recommend that um, oh. uh, from our professional <laughs> health uh, perspective. Yeah, there's but, a Stephen King novel about that. It didn't go well at the end, unfortunately. Yeah. So, but this person that you're looking for to, to help you, I mean, they're really only doing 20 miles a day. So this is going to be a really long, uh, short driving experience for them, but a very long time. So like, you know, someone might be thinking, well, how am I going to fill in the rest of that time? But um, I think there's a lot of directions you could take that. That person could bring on a yeah. whole slew of, of, of different um, levels of awareness, projects, yeah. you know, working remotely, things like that. Yep. No, you're right. And, you know, obviously it's not going to be like, you know, constantly providing me support. I mean... You know, I don't really need, you know, I need to be able to eat and drink 
uh, and maybe have an emergency call out for something. But that's, you know, I mean, I'm I'm out here walking around all the time by myself without too much trouble. Um, but, you know, in order for this to work, uh, I really need to have somebody there um, with with support, because at some point, you know, as you go farther and farther west, you know, this country is pretty desolate. Um, yeah. You know, you get west of uh, Kansas. I mean, even Kansas is pretty desolate. I'm going through Kansas and then the Colorado down in the southwest. Colorado down through New Mexico, Arizona. It's it's pretty, you know, there's going to be some long stretches where, you know, I'm probably going to have to sleep on the side of the road someplace. Um, we need to find somebody who's in telehealth who can just be like working and seeing patients from their car as they drive along with you. It's like nothing <laughs> lost for them. It'll just be like banging out yeah. work, you know, it'd be perfect. Yeah. Okay. I well, totally agree. That actually sounds like a great idea. <laughs> I, I've got some telehealth folks. I'll make this happen. I'll, I'll see what I can do about that. Okay. I appreciate well, uh, your help, Mike. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm here for. All right, <laughs> always here for that. Okay. Th there's healthcare workers are are in this pandemic, and I see these similarities between the soldiers that we served alongside with in Afghanistan. We're in healthcare fighting this invisible enemy. It can be harbored in people that we work shoulder to shoulder with, or even the people that we are tasked to serve. There's information wars going on as well. It, it almost feels like a counterinsurgency fight, you know, and it's a different kind of fight as you had to learn um, than a conventional combat where I can see the thing in front of me clearly. I can see a broken arm in front of me. I can see somebody who's bleeding in front of me. This is a different kind of a fight for a healthcare worker. Are there any best practices for healthcare workers? that you think that you can pull from some of these best counterinsurgency practices that you had to learn before, uh, you know, GWAT and the Afghanistan fight that we undertook? So the first thing I want to say is I, I don't, I don't have expertise as a healthcare worker, but I certainly am sympathizing um, with the front. They're the frontline soldiers right now with this pandemic. And, um, some of this is going to be based off of my impressions of things, but I, but I think I'm fairly accurate. Um, so um, I honor you and I appreciate you. And I think it's important for us as, as you know, I'll just say us as Americans to let you know that. Um, because I think there's a sense of isolation and frustration and being overworked and overstretched and not that nobody really cares about them. Um, and there probably isn't a lot of leadership. And I think, frankly, that's the problem. It's a problem in our country, in the private sector and public sector. But where's the leader who's out there actually paying attention to the healthcare professional and checking on them and listening to them, even Got it. There's difference of opinion about all, all of this because it got politicized. And so people are now weaponized by, by some of this. But a good leader at least can listen and care for and provide support mm -hmm. uh, to those on the front line. That, that's probably not really happening. Um, that's probably the exception. So, you know, when we were in Afghanistan fighting a very difficult enemy, a very lethal enemy, you know, I, I approached that problem and trained our battalion to fight a certain way and very quickly figured out that that wasn't going to work. 
I had to be honest about it. I had to be honest with myself because it's not about me. It's about the mission, the people, and then me. So that means humility matters and authenticity matters from a leadership perspective. And, and if you're wrong, you say you're wrong because it's not about you. And I now had to make some decisions. Like, do we just keep doing what we're doing and hope that it works out? Or do I say, well, this isn't going to work. I've got to come up with something else. And I decided to change completely how we were doing things. Now I had to convince a bunch of thousands of people, hey, we're going to do something different now. And I had to go around and talk to people every day and explain it every day and listen and listen to the frustration and listen to the ideas. Um, it's so leadership. You, you know, Kenny, you talk about having a, a good leader and a good leader helps people prevent um, injury and uh, mental crises. They might be going through things like that. I was just thinking to myself, what's going to happen if you get hurt on this trip or mentally, who are you going to talk to? Like, I know you're the leader of your one man band kind of here, but like, it's not though, you know, there's going to be a lot of people following you um, and watching what you're doing, but what do you do if you get injured or have an issue? Physically, um, you know, I'm going to, to, to be prepared to, if I need to take a break or slow down my pace or, or just instead of doing 20 miles a day, I'll do 10 miles a day or I'll do whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not an ultra athlete <laughs> trying to set a world record here. It's about the journey for me. Right. So, you know, if I have to stop for a week and recover because I pulled a hamstring or sprained an ankle or whatever, then, then that's, you know, I, I'm not worried about the physical part of it as much. You know, there's the psychological, there's the mental part of it. Um, you know, it's lonely. It can be very lonely, um, you know, walking out there. I, I do not plug in when I walk. I, I do not listen to music. I don't listen to podcasts or anything like that. I just pay attention to my environment. And I always find, actually, that there is a lot to see. It's can actually you tell us a little bit about some of the things you've seen recently besides the donkey? I mean, I, I know what you've seen because I follow your page. But yeah. a couple things. Just tell us that maybe... Uh, you know, I'm a hiker, so yeah. I, I, I understand you can go for an hour and you're like, oh, my gosh, I've gone for an hour um, and I'm not listening to music either. So, well, I mean, it's going to sound sort of there's some a certain Zen to this. I mean, obviously, when you're hiking in the woods, that's a different experience because you're you're really very closely related to nature and you're looking for things. You're looking for birds and animals and tracks and you're listening to the wind in the trees. Okay. All of those things, every little thing I, I find an appreciation for. Um, the sound of, of water rushing and the sound of the wind that I you know, would not be necessarily pay attention to before. But a lot of the times I'm walking in an urban area. All right. And, and so, you know, it's, it's literally like even here in Carlisle, every time I walk around in Carlisle, I see something new. I see something I've never seen before. And it, and it's and it's just this sort of being in the moment um, and paying attention to the world uh, that enables us to actually see that we live in a really amazing you know life if we pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. And and I'm also a keen observer of the people around me. I mean, I'm blessed because you know here I am. I've retired. You know, financially I'm you know, stable and I don't have to worry about you know I don't feel compelled to have a, a job to make a lot of money 
and I can enjoy my life. Um, but the people around me are in a hurry. Everyone's in a hurry. Um, people driving are angry. I can see it in their eyes. <laughs> yeah. off just stopping for an extra second to let me cross the street. I mean, oh, dang. You know, everybody's angry. Everyone's in a hurry. Well, listen, if you if for some reason one of those angry people, um, you know, tries to mess with you, you you let me know their license plate. But <laughs> also, you know, Mike and I were talking about supporting you uh, if you needed to phone a friend, you know, maybe you got a bellyache for two days and you're not really sure why. But, you know, that might just be because you've been really engaging your abdominal muscles, you know, uh, for whatever reason. But we're more than happy to be your your phone, a medical friend. And I guarantee you there'll be plenty of other people that would would love to help you. Um, so just keep that in mind. No, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a different layer of connection. You know, this, somebody recently asked me, how do, how do I define success for this? Is it just getting to California, which is, you know, going to be success for you? Well, no, that's part of it, obviously, but it's, it's, it's being able to meet people. It's being able to walk with people or talk to people, people that just that, that don't even know who just want to come out and just do something different. And uh, I'm certainly going to run into things that are that I, I can't, you know, medically potentially uh, that I, I just can't predict. And, you know, who knows what I'll be eating and drinking out there. Um, you know, there's there's going to be some challenges there. And I, 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 I appreciate any kind of support that any i'm humbled by it frankly that that people would want to give to me well i know some people are kind of signing off facebook to like tiktok or instagram now but i encourage you guys if for nothing else get back on facebook so you can follow the journey of kenny mintz here um right now he's at kenny walks is the name of your group on facebook k-e-n-n-y space walks w-a-l-k-s the um website is KennyWalksAcrossAmerica.com. Are there any other good ways for people to kind of watch, follow, support you, things like that, Kenny? Right. So, so again, here I am, a bit of a ludite in the social media. I could definitely use a social media uh, consigliere. Um, <laughs> but um, so I have a, a Facebook account, which is Kenny Walks, but my, my page is Kenny Walks Across America. That's where all my content is posted. Um, so you just have to follow and like that page. I do have a Kenny walks across America, Instagram. Nice. Yep. Uh, saw that. Those are the two main places. Um, I, I have a group Kenny walks across America group. I just haven't started playing with it yet. So, you know, it's, if you go to either, if you go to Kenny walks across America, you're going to find me. Well, we will make sure that we put that in our liner notes. And yes, also I you. plan to come and meet you in California when you make it here. Um, you're not that far away from me. Um, I say that, but, uh, California is a big state. It's so a very big state. <laughs> I'm going to find a way to get down there and meet you. And your start date is my birthday. Oh. Um, so I'm super excited about that. Cool. And, um, you know, we're just really glad we could have you on the show. If any of our listeners would like to reach out, reach out to Kenny directly or, or let us know, uh, we'd, we'd love to continue to support you. Thank you. If I could, just two more things real quick. Yeah. I, you know, I, I am, I'm, I'm going to be supporting three charities, one for, for pancreatic cancer research. Uh, I'll also be uh, supporting a, an organization called Operation Resiliency, which hosts 
unit level uh, reunions for veterans. So that's a great way for veterans to connect. I've, I've participated in one, so I believe in, in them. It's through something called the Independence Fund. And I'll also be fundraising um, for a college fund in the name of Jordan Morris, who was one of the soldiers killed during our deployment. Um, he's gonna be, he's, he's, I'm using his name to represent all of our fallen uh, because I think he's a very unique uh, individual and uh, I describe all of this uh, in, in my mission statement. But, you know, all those charities will be up on my Kenny Walks Across America uh, Facebook page. And again, I just, you know, I appreciate the support. I appreciate the interest in my mission. Of course, you're an interesting guy always, Kenny. We're going to have links to pancan.org. That's the Pancreatic Cancer Education Organization, Operation Resiliency. And, and man, if nothing else, you guys, you guys got to learn about Jordan Morris. And just the the path that this soldier's life took, uh, and how he met his untimely end in Afghanistan, unfortunately. But um, it's a crazy situation here, and I think you you describe it very eloquently. And I think it's great you're raising money for all these education and, and and awareness funds, Kenny. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks, Kenny. Okay, for our something sweet uh, this episode, we're going to talk about something not so sweet, frankly, and it's kind of where we're at in terms of COVID and therapeutics. Of course, at the speed of COVID, we should have known right after we released our segment on COVID therapeutics last episode, things kind of changed in the world of COVID-19. I had talked back then about, hey, in a pinch, why don't you go ahead and use your BAM-EDI or your CAS-MD, the Regeneron therapeutic antibody cocktails. If you have somebody, even though Omicron is predominating right now, of course, shortly after that, we had a... Um, release from the NIH basically saying, hey, we are stopping the use of both of those antibody cocktails in the United States. For now, you can only use sotrovimab. So um, hopefully you guys have seen that. We will put a link to that kind of notification in the show notes here um, saying, hey, don't use those things. And so as an amendment to what I said last episode here, I definitely could not, you know, suggest in good conscience here publicly to say, Yes, use those, even though the NIH is saying do not use those. So don't use those for now. All right. Um, talking about Paxlovid, talking about Molnupiravir, I'm hoping that in March we're going to see a lot more of these uh, as far as in stock and in more pharmacies. What I found was this very cool website by the Department of Health and Human Services. And it is a like a Google Maps for uh, COVID therapeutics. You can find... Paxlovid, you can find molnupiravir. We didn't even talk about Evusheld, which is kind of like a pre-exposure prophylaxis drug you give intramuscularly here. But you can find all three of those medications uh, and you just kind of put in the state and you put in which of the three medications you want and it'll help you graphically find um, these medications in your local area. So super helpful here. We'll put a link to that graphical um, device in the show notes here. What else to talk about with regards to therapeutics? Those are the big things really is just knowing how to find your therapeutics. And, and I feel like from my position where I've been having to find these therapeutics is becoming easier, thankfully. Um, I was actually featured in the Wall Street Journal recently as far as being interviewed about how hard it was to find the therapeutics. And so the, as fast as COVID moves, of course, right after that article came out in the journal, um, this website got publicized with the terms of how to find the therapeutics. 
and my little something weak story, if I have to have a something weak story, it's this. I, I had a very hard time finding the medication for a person one week. I had to leave it to the patient to find their, their anti-COVID therapeutic. They finally found it. They told me where it was, and I prescribed it. A week later on, the patient's wife came in, and they were having COVID-19. By then, I had found out about this therapeutic website, and first time search, I found the exact one that that spouse needed, and they were off to the races going to the exact pharmacy minutes later than that. So um, this website is really changing the game in terms of making it easier for clinicians to find our COVID therapeutics. That will be in the show notes. Um, it is a very long website. It starts out with COVID-19-therapeutics-locator. It is an HHS website, even though it's on a .com domain. So that's the one we're looking for here if you're just trying to Google it on your own and find it. But we'll have the uh, link in the show notes. We've been remiss to not say our website name. That is twoview.fireside.fm. That is always the number two view.fireside.fm. All of our show notes for this and other episodes will be at that website. Let's go on to our two view trivia answer. And right, first, well, the question and the giveaway. Wait, wait, go wait. Ahead. We, we got to talk. We got to tell them what they win first. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go. This month, we're giving away 20% off the July boot camp course. Okay. And yes. then you're also going to come have lunch with us. We have a really good time. Um, and uh, you can join us in Las Vegas and share your ER experience with us over a good meal. Or if you feel like you're not ready to travel, then certainly we can give you 20% off a home study course. Here's last month's question and answer. The question, what popular idiom involves what facial body part, and a grindstone. And how did it originate? Again, it was what body part and how did the answer, or the how did the idiom come about? Martha, what's the answer here? So the answer here is nose to the grindstone. Okay, that's our answer, nose to the grindstone. So when sharpening blades, knife grinders tend to bend over the grindstone or even flat down next to it with their faces near the grindstone in order to hold the blade against the stone. And earliest known reference was from John Firth's A Mirror or Glass to Know Thyself, uh, excuse me, 1532, um, where he says, This text holdeth their noses to so hard to the grindstone that it can disfigureth their faces. So I just thought that um, this was kind of a cool little throwback to some old uh, literature. And basically, you need to work your face off when you're when you're putting your nose to the grindstone. <laughs> That's great. And the winner of that uh, was Kate Van Armen, a nurse practitioner here. So congratulations to Kate Van Armen. We hope to see you in Vegas or remotely pretty soon. Okay. All right. This month's question, you want to read it or you want me to? I want to, because this, this is what I find out, and I, I'm always excited about you know this sort of thing here. Um, not mushrooms, but video games. We'll be talking about mushrooms on our next podcast. This is kind of like a, a teaser and a moose-a-bouche, if you will, for our next uh, episode here. This is the two-part trivia question. There's always two parts to our trivia. There is a famous video game out there that involves taking mushrooms to grow bigger in size. What is the name of this video game? And what real-life psychoactive mushroom that can cause users to perceive changes in size of things around them do these red and white spotted mushrooms in the video game look like in real life? Email us your guesses at twoviewcast at gmail.com. It's always the number two, 
viewcast at gmail.com. And also tell us if you want to give a shout out to somebody as well. I can't wait to talk about um, some mushroom stuff. It can't be more uh, sensitive than talking about foreign bodies in the rectum and vagina. That's for sure. Oh, and it's kind of hard to get a mushroom up anywhere because it kind of just disintegrates. So don't worry. That's not how we're ingesting the mushrooms. We are. There will not be a mashup. Yes. We will either. eat them. Not us, but the proverbial we. Anyway, so, uh, Mike, we got to go. We got to go. For more information about us and our faculty, visit our website featuring all our upcoming courses, www.ccme.org, and consider coming to see us this July. Check out all of our home study courses, Farm, Heart, EKG, Imaging Boot Camps. Check them all out. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Two of You. You can subscribe and especially rate us on Apple, iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for two view emergency that's the number two view emergency and it'll come right up ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians can get some more two view goodness if you like youtube and you want to see the video blog instead search for center for medical education and you can catch the video version don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes including all the papers and sites we refer to that's twoview.fireside.fm our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. Thanks again for tuning in, friends in EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today on The Two View. Have a great day and a great shift. <laughs>